If you haven't discovered it yet, history is a love of mine. It was one of my majors in college, and so it's an easy default place for me to go. But I think further, it's so interesting because we can learn a lot from history if we know history. And if you had history in school and it was boring, you probably had a boring teacher because history is far from boring. Your history personally is not boring. It's interesting. It's filled with all kinds of experiences and people that really make you the kind of person that you are, an interesting person. And when we understand that and we go into history and we go, wow, I didn't know that, or how parallel is that to where I'm living today? I wanna take you back to the Battle of Trenton. You've probably not heard of it unless you know history a little bit, but it was a small, pivotal battle during the American Revolutionary War which took place on December 26th, 1776 in Trenton, New Jersey. Washington had been defeated and was forced to retreat to the Battle of Brooklyn Heights. His troops had really been reduced down from about 20,000 to 2,000. Most of them had been reduced not by the battle of war, but really by the frigid cold, by the difficulties and the challenges. Many of the soldiers didn't even have shoes. That's how ill-equipped the Revolutionary Army was. They were underpaid, they were understaffed, they were underclothed, they were, every aspect of their, their challenge made them the underdog. And most of the soldiers were really volunteers. They were eager to go home to their families and go home to the stores and shops that they ran at home. And Washington was an amazing leader and he realized that, that he couldn't even hold on to the 2,000 if he wasn't careful. And he began to, to challenge them and to rally them, and he wondered how he would do that, and he remembered the writing of Thomas Paine, who wrote The American Crisis. He opened up that little pamphlet, and he began to read, and I'm just going to pull out a few excerpts from that pamphlet. I believe there were three volumes in that pamphlet, and each and every one of them are the kind of things you want to read because they challenge you to be a courageous human being. He said, these are the times that try men's souls. Doesn't that sound familiar? Well, this is where it came from. The summer soldiers and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from service of his country. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict the more glorious the triumph. None of us like conflict, none of us like challenge, but we all know that when we persevere through those challenges, we become better people. We become ready for the next challenge in our life. He went on to say, what we obtain too cheap, we, we esteem too lightly. Sometimes that happens in the Christian life with grace. Grace is so easily given that we take it for granted the forgiveness of God, and we, we really move into this realm where we exploit the grace of God for our own personal preferences. But we need to be solid in what God has done. God didn't save you, remove your sins for you so that you could live your life for your own pleasure, but rather to live it for him, which ultimately would be for your own good. It's that it's the dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods. 
And would it be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated? The fields of battle have happened for generation after generation where men and women have given their life one way or another for freedom, to make it possible for you and I. My dad was in the military, as many of you know, and he retired after 30 years of service. And I remember asking him one time, what is that medal? And he said, that's the Bronze Star. And I said, why did you get that? He said, oh, I was just a common soldier doing what I needed to do. It'd only be later I would look up and find why he won that and how he won that and, and what level of, of award that was. And then he had little stars on a medal that he got in Korea. And he had a silver one and two black ones. And I said, what are those? He said, the silver is five major battles and the black ones are one battle. So my dad was in seven major battles. He never really talked about it. He talked about his duty, his responsibility as a human being, as an American. But your field, the field that you're playing on today, it is greater than the battles of Hiroshima. It's greater than the battles of the Bulge. It's greater than the battle of Gettysburg because you're engaged with an enemy that is spiritual in nature. An enemy that will, if given the opportunity, take your life, destroy your family, and mess up your destiny. So it's important that you realize the battle you're on, even though we look at these great battles. I've walked Arlington National Cemetery. Both my mom and my dad are buried there, and I've seen that, that just row after row after row of grave markers commemorating those who had served so valiantly in the military. And I realize that there are battles that you and I will fight that will make all of those look small by comparison. Because each and every day you are fighting with an enemy that never, never feels sorry for you, that never takes a break, that never somehow can be talked out of his agenda, and unless you are properly prepared for the battle, you will not succeed. Being a Christian is all about trusting in the Lord, putting on the battle, and being ready to do what God has called you to do. And I think you're ready to do that, amen? Let's talk about the field of conflict. We're gonna talk about that word field today because it's, it's really given many, many times in many different references in the word of God. But the first reference is Genesis chapter three and verse one. It says, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? It's interesting, in this would, what would be a perfect environment, except for the serpent, the serpent shows up, and the first thing he does, he questions the word of God. His attack is not on Eve or on Adam at that point. He will go indirectly by attacking the word of God. Your first attack always will be, can I trust God? Is God's word true? Will God come through for me? How do I know it's gonna work? Or I've tried that, you'll hear this comment, I've tried that and it didn't work. You see, so Satan is always gonna diminish the word of God in your life. The Bible says the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. That when it begins to work in your life, it separates the division of your soul and your spirit, your bone and your marrow. In other words, it gets down to the true intentions of your heart. The Bible says the word of God is eternal and fixed in the heavens. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God, the Bible says, will endure forever. When Jesus returns, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, he comes as the word of God. He comes to bring judgment on those who rebelled against him throughout generations, but now he's revealed as the word of God, living and breathing, and he comes again in his second coming. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, it says the thief, and the context of the scripture is clear, it's Satan himself. The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. You wanna know Satan's agenda for your life? It's those three things. He wants to steal from you, your destiny, your hope, your joy, your life, your future, everything that's valuable he wants to steal. He wants to also kill, you kill your dream. If he can't tell you physically, he'll kill you other ways, emotionally. To where you give up and you live your life in fear instead of in power and in authority. And then he comes to destroy. He destroys the legacy that you want to set for generations to come. He wants to take away what's really important in your life. And somehow he convinces us with just a little word or just a little bit of temptation that this is better than him. And we fall prey to that sometimes, don't we? Because we're not perfect. If you haven't come to that realization yet, you should. It's a good thing to know. But you see, the enemy challenges your authority. Well, who am I? Have you ever made this statement? Well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. What you are is a child of the living God. What you are is someone with a destiny for eternity. What you have is you have been given entrance into the throne room of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, not as a servant or a subject, but as a son or a daughter. Don't diminish who you are. Have you ever made a statement like this? Well, I'm just one person, what can I do? One persons all across the universe have made a difference in the world because they determined they were more than one person that they had influence, that they, they had prayer, they had authority, they had supernatural power because they said, no, I'm not gonna roll over and play dead. You have to come to a place in your life where you say, sink or swim, do or die, I'm gonna trust the Lord. I may not understand it, it may not be comfortable, I may not like it in this moment, but I'm gonna trust the Lord because I know ultimately that's where the winning game is. You see, the enemy wants to destroy your destiny. I wonder what God has for you. He said, well, I'm, I'm getting older. I don't know if I have much of a destiny. You always have a destiny. Turn to the last book in the Bible sometime and read it. It's called the book of Revelation. It was written by John, the apostle. He wrote it when he was 90 years old. So much for retirement. He was put on the Isle of Patmos because he was a threat. He was a threat to the Roman Empire at 90 years of age. They said, let's get this guy out of town, put him on the Isle of Patmos, and that'll be the end of him. That was just the beginning of John. That's when John began to shine. He found himself there giving, being given revelation after revelation from Almighty God in that confinement on that penal island. You see, here's what we want to remember we should never give up ground to the enemy. That line has been used probably by more military leaders uh, than any other, any other group of people. 
Because you don't want to take the same ground twice. You paid a price to get this far. Don't give up that ground and have to take the same ground twice. You see, some of us as Christians, what we've done is we've, we have to keep taking the same ground because we keep giving up or we keep falling back or we, we're not disciplined or we're not, we're not just solid with God. And we go, I've been down this road before. I've got to do it again. I've got to do it again. Your spiritual maturity does not stay in one place any more than your age does. You have to sustain your maturity and your, and your spirituality all the time, and you have to always be pressing in to grow further and deeper and deeper into God. And if you do it a little bit every day, you won't even notice because you're, what you're doing is you're growing and you're growing and you're growing and you're growing and you're coming, you're, you're just getting more supernatural in your insight. The hard thing is when you try to cram for the exam. How many of you did that in school, Right? We probably all did it from time to time. You know, I didn't study all semester. I guess it's time I get to business. It's amazing what a human being could learn in one night, isn't it? And then you forget it all the next day. I don't know. What was it? I don't know. It was like I stayed up 12 hours straight. I drank 200 cups of coffee. We had a coffee maker in our, one of those giant 20-cup ones in our, in our dorm room, and it, it didn't work quite right. It would uh, overheat, and it would start boiling the coffee, which made for an interesting taste. But then being innovative college students, we understood that there was another purpose for that coffee maker, and we decided if we took the insides out, we could boil hot dogs in that thing. Now, if you don't think your coffee tasted weird after that, let me tell you, I guarantee it did. Uh, when I graduated, I decided to give up childish things, and I got rid of it. Let me talk to you about the field of potential. You ever thought about your life having potential? Having a future, and I don't mean just for those of you who are, let's say, you know, young. I mean for every one of you have potential that's untapped. Sometimes you, you know so much that it becomes so common that you don't think it's valuable. You ever been around somebody that's been around the block a while and they, they've got a lot of insight and they're telling, you're just like amazed. You're just like sitting back going, that's amazing, it's amazing. And they go, what? but it's become so natural and such a part of their life that they're just giving you wisdom and knowledge and understanding without even thinking about it. What would happen for those of you who are in that stage of maturity if you would start to capture that and give that out to more and more people? That's giving your potential. That's helping people to grow. That's pouring into people younger than you. Everybody should be mentoring or discipling someone somehow, some way. It doesn't have to be formal. It can be simply a handshake in a hallway. It can simply be a word spoken fitly at the right time. But think about what you can do. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44, the Bible says, the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven like? You can almost hear the disciples ask this question, and he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hid in a field. There it is again. We talked about the field of conflict. Now we're going to talk about the field of potential. You're walking across a field and you, you take the shortcut and it goes on to say, which a man found and he hid and for joy he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Imagine you're walking across that field and you stumble on something and you reach down, you begin to dig your hand through the dirt and you find a precious diamond maybe a pearl of great price, maybe something that you know is significantly valuable. 
Now, you can't take it because that would be stealing, so you bury it again, and you go to the owner and say, I'd like to buy that field. Because you know everything in the field goes with the field. Amen? And so you buy the field, you, and you don't have enough money, and so you, go, you sell everything you have. You sell your, your, your meat of transportation. You sell your home. You sell everything because you know that this is going to pay a big dividend. And you go and you exchange that money all of your life. You exchange it for that one field, and then you take that pearl of great price, that treasure hidden in the field, and you sell it, and you know now it's worth more than you could ever have imagined in the first place. He says that's what the kingdom of God is like. When you find the kingdom of God, you, you, you find something so valuable that you should sell everything you have. To obtain this relationship with God, this entrance into God's kingdom. Because if you have that, your life is set. If you don't have that, but you have all your stuff, you're not set for life. God says the kingdom of heaven is like that. Malachi chapter three, verses 10 through 12. God gives us some insight into this. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. You see, God understands something about the treasures and the kingdom. It's interesting, people all through the years ask me whenever I speak about giving, is that uncomfortable or difficult? I said, no, it's actually the easiest thing I do. Because I don't know of anything that can accelerate your spiritual faith faster than generosity. It's such an amazing thing because it doesn't make sense on paper. Very few times in my life have I ever looked at it from an accounting standpoint and said it makes sense for me to give and be generous. It just doesn't. But remember, it's a supernatural principle and it's a discipline that God puts into our life. So God's writing to his people. He says, I want you to bring all the tithe. Now, if you don't know what a tithe is, uh, I was discipling a young guy one time and he said, what's this tithy? And I said, a tithy? What's a tithy? I don't know. And he, he lurked for a while and counted, yeah, here's the tithy. I said, oh, okay, that's a tithe. It actually is a, is a word that means a tenth, and it's where we get our word dime from the Latin. It says that there may be food in my house, and this is the only time in Scripture where God says, test me. Would you test God? Well, that sounds a little scary. I mean, I don't know. What, would he get mad? Well, on this particular occasion, God says, I want you to put me to the test because I don't think you believe me in your heart of hearts. That's why I want you to test me. He doesn't say that about salvation. That seems easy, right? Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead. I put my faith in him, I get saved. That doesn't, he doesn't say, test me, see if I'll save you. No, we just kind of fall into that and go, that makes sense because God is speaking to me through that. I know this one doesn't make sense, God says, so test me on this, says the Lord of hosts. And here's what the promise is. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven. You know, heaven has windows, so to speak. It has those portals that open up blessings and bring favor to us. And some of those things, and most of those things in my life, have just kind of been unexpected. I don't know how I got there. I don't know how that blessing came to me, but it came to me. But some of them are very clear that it was a part of my commitment to honor God with his tithe. He says, I'm gonna open windows of heaven and I'm going to do this for you. I'm gonna pour out such a blessing, there will not be room enough to receive it. I'm a testimony of that. 
I, I've, I've known what it's like to be down to nothing. I can remember going through the grocery store when we were first married and we've got one of those calculators. Some of you have never seen one. They actually used to have calculators. It wasn't on your phone. And we go through there and we knew exactly how much we had in the checking account and we knew that also that check wouldn't go through for about three days. You remember this? Yeah, it's not true anymore. I mean, it's, they figured that one out. And we'd go through there, and, and then we'd, we'd calculate it all up, and then we'd start taking stuff out of the basket, right? And usually the stuff we took out was like, you know, four boxes of macaroni and cheese, you know, that were like 15 cents a box. But, you know, you're trying to get it down, and you're trying to live right there because you know how tight you have to budget. But I'm going to tell you one thing that never happened in our life. It never happened that we waited to see how much we had left, and then we took God out of the basket. We always kept God in the basket, so to speak. We always honored God with the first tenth of our income, even when we made so little. And you know what? Was it easy? Not really. It's never easy to run on a tight budget. But you know what? God always somehow blessed me. God somehow blessed our household. God bring, brought things to us we never could have imagined. I've told this story before, but I love telling it because it's so telling. We were driving. We were pastoring in Baton Rouge. I was going to grad school in New Orleans. We had two kids. We didn't plan any of them. Uh, we ended up having the third one. Didn't plan her either. It just, I don't know what happened. After the third one, we figured out what caused it, and we stopped. That is having babies. I want to clarify here. But we were leaving and we were driving out and Tammy said we need to get some diapers because it's, uh, it's, you know, it's about a 100-mile travel from Baton Rouge to New Orleans. And so we need to get some diapers. I said, we don't have any money. We got to get gas for the car or get diapers, but we don't get to Baton Rouge. And so I sarcastically, kind of smart-alecky said, look, just pray they don't go to the bathroom between now and Baton Rouge because we had a washing machine up there. We could wash diapers. Remember that world? The dunking was never my favorite. How about yours? If you've never dunked a diaper, a cloth diaper, you've really never lived life. It's not of God. I, I don't know how many diapers and training pants I threw away in my lifetime. I said, there's no way I'm going and doing this. Tammy's not home. It's gone. So anyway, we're driving up, and we're just praying, God, give us diapers. Give us, give, let the kids not do anything, and... And we, uh, we got up to our, our little house that we had up there in Baton Rouge that the church owned. And on the front porch was a large cardboard box. I mean, this high and probably three or four feet wide, three or four feet deep. And we pulled in the carport. We went through the house. We opened the front door. And there was not a box, but a case of diapers. Now, if you don't think that's a good blessing, then you've never changed a diaper. Amen. <laughs> There's just something wrong about that whole principle. I don't know. I know God did it to humble parents because there's no other purpose for it that I can understand. But the interesting thing is that the man who gave it didn't go to church. And when he was placing his, his wife did, but his, he just said, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. I won't go to church. And I remember every time uh, I'd go get gas, and he'd say, Preacher, you know why I don't go to church? And I said, Yeah, Homer, I know because the church is filled with hypocrites. And one week, one week I said to him, I said, uh, he's, He asked me that comment, you know why I don't go to church? It was like, you know, routine. 
And I said, I know because the church is full of hypocrites. And I, and I, I finally found, you're right, and I finally found one person there that's not a hypocrite. And he got really curious. And he said, are you a hypocrite? I said, absolutely. I said, and everybody in our church is a hypocrite from one time or another in their life. Because a hypocrite is someone who pretends to be something they're not. It came out of, it came out of the, the playwright time where they would take a mask and they would hold it over their face and pretend to be a different character. And I know there's been times in my life when all was not well, but I put on the smile and I told everybody all was well and Jesus loved me and he's taken care of me and I felt abandoned. So I know that. And he looked at me and he said, uh, well, who's up there is not a hypocrite? I said, Jesus. The rest of us are, amen? The rest of us got problems. He said, where are you headed? He said, I'm headed to Baton Rouge. We're going to try to buy a new sign for the church. He said, how much does it cost? I said, I, I think it's going to be about $3,000. He said, wait just a minute. He went in there, came out with a check for $3,000 and said, I'll be at church Sunday. He said, you're the first preacher who was ever honest with me. You see, Homer learned how to give. He learned the blessings of God somehow. Look at the promise here. He said, uh, and I will rebuke the devourer. You know what the devourer is? The devourer is anything that takes away your livelihood, your purpose, and your destiny. For your sakes, that it will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor the vine that shall fail to bear fruit for, for you in the field. There it is again, the field says the Lord of hosts, and the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord. And what we see here is there is a divine challenge that God gives every one of us in this room. Test me. Test me. There is also a divine blessing. I'm gonna open up heavens for you. Watch what I can do when you do what I ask you to do, and then divine protection. I'm gonna rebuke the devourer for you. You're not gonna to have to do that. I'm gonna do that for you. And an interesting side note, when, we, when we're speaking so much about nations and especially America, did you notice what it says, that there's a national blessing that comes from the obedience of God's people? Let me, let me put it in another way. When God's people are obedient to love the Lord and do what God says, the entire nation gets blessed. Look what it says in the scripture. And the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land. You see, there's something about the minority influence within the kingdom that can change a nation. We can bring national blessings on America by our obedience. I mean, think about the scripture that says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, right? Seek my face then I'll heal the land. It doesn't say if everybody in America gets straight, gets right, gets good. It doesn't say that. It says, no, if my people, you see, people without God are doing what comes naturally. They're living out their life naturally apart from God. Don't point your finger at them. Point your finger at yourself and say, am I doing what God called me to do as a Christian? Am I living out my life and bringing the blessings on those who don't know God? We're called to do what's supernatural, not natural. We're called to do Christ in us, the power in us, the life in us. That's what we're called to do. I wanna just bring this to you because this is the last Sunday of the year, and we, we've had a great year. I have been in this sermon series longer than I think any series I've ever been in. 
and I'm not gonna end until we get this thing fixed in America. You might even get a, a bachelor's degree in history before it's all over, who knows. But I wanna give you just the year-end challenge. Year-end challenge is this is what we need to finish the year by the 31st, is $139,675 to be exact. Now, you might be able to write that check, but chances are most of you won't. But you know what I found is that when everybody does their part, the answers come. The needs are met. And you know what we do? We do so much for our neighborhood, for our community, for our church families, and uh, you're a part of being that blessing. So I just want to appeal to you just to ask God, God, what part of that can I have in the future of the church? See, I believe in revelation giving. I don't believe in guilt. If you give out of a guilty heart, just keep your money. It's really, you, you gotta get the heart right first because then it feels good. Every time I got guilted into something, I never felt good about it. But if, if God says, you know, Phil, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. I go, yeah, I'm liking this, God. This feels pretty good. Now let me talk to you about a third field, and that's the field of opportunity. Psalm 37 is one of my favorite psalms, and many of you probably know the last part of this. The last part of this says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Isn't that a good one? That's a refrigerator verse, right? I'm gonna just be happy today. God's gonna give me whatever I is in my heart. Well, it's not exactly what it says. Let's back up a little bit. Let's read it. Trust in the Lord. Okay, first step, trust in the Lord. So ask yourself right now, am I trusting in the Lord? Or am I trusting in my job, my employer, my, my husband, my wife, my son, my daughter, my relative, the president, the Congress, the Senate? What am I trusting in? Trust in the Lord. Just stop there. Go, I want to trust in God right now. I'm going to trust you, God. I may not even know how that works in every application, but I'm gonna trust you. And then it goes on to say, do good. So I trust God, now I'm gonna do good. Am I a person that's doing good? Am I actively trying to do good for people? It's a part of what it means here. See, God is good, then we should be good, amen? It doesn't say be perfect. It says be good, do good. And then it says, feed on his faithfulness. You know what it means? God, you're faithful. You know how you feed on the faithfulness? You pull out all the dishes that he served you over the years, and you're reminded that even today is a dish of faithfulness from God. I'm just gonna eat on your faithfulness. God, I wanna be reminded. You've come through in the past. You're a God of the, of the past, present, and future, and I'm just gonna keep trusting you, and I'm gonna feed on your uh, faithfulness. And then delight yourself also in the Lord. You see, if, if I go through those steps first, when I delight myself in the Lord, it just feels so much better. God, I just wanna give you cre credit. I wanna acknowledge you. I wanna say I love you, God, and just speak those words. When you speak them out loud, they have more power than when you say them to yourself. So I wanna you, give you a little experiment. I want you just to try it. I just want you right now, everybody, one voice, in your own words, however you wanna say it, I just wanna delight in the Lord. Just say it out loud. Just say it out loud. Just everybody, just I delight in you, God. I praise you, God. I give you thanks, God. I, your goodness and your mercy are so great, God. I love you, God. Thank you for loving me. And just let your heart be filled with gratitude and praise, amen? And it just changes you. Then it says here, and then, look what it says, he will give you the desires of your heart. 
You see, you had a heart adjustment, so now the desires of your heart have changed, right? In, in verse one, you know, you, you, weren't, you were probably thinking about what you wanted. But by the time you get to the end of this verse, now you're thinking, wow, now I, I really, I wanna treasure those things that are really valuable in my life. So he says, trust in the Lord. Let's go through them again, do good. Dwell in the land, feed on his faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Um, I've been writing these prophetic blessings for years now, and one day we'll publish them in a book, but here's the one that's called the generosity principle. And what I want you to do is I want you to stand with me today. If you're outside, if you're watching online, just stand up. It's just, just say, I wanna, I wanna make this real. I wanna change my posture so that I can think about the goodness of God. And I want you to repeat after me. Because it does good when we just make a, a confession before the Lord, amen? In Jesus' name, I acknowledge God's principle of sowing and reaping. My faith is multiplied and enriched through my generosity. God has opened the windows of heaven for me to receive a blessing beyond all that I could imagine. I expect, do you really? Let's say it again. I expect, say it like you mean it. I expect that God will work miracles in my life. I will bless the work of the kingdom that in all ways I might be a blessing to others. Amen. If you, uh, if you haven't yet confessed Christ as your Savior and Lord, could I just ask you today to consider that? To make that prayer statement before him, that faith statement before him, something like this, Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on a cross for my sins. I believe that you were buried and raised for the dead to give me eternal life. I trust you now as my Lord, as my Savior. Write my name in the book of life. Give me eternal life, Lord Jesus. And if that was your prayer, just in your own words, you can just thank him by saying thank you, Lord, or amen, or whatever seems bright for you. And, and as you do, you just know that God loves you. Say, well, I, you, you say, I'm not perfect. Yeah, we knew that. We know that of all mankind. But God loves us anyway, amen?